0: 11-18. to Not much point saying in the pew Bible. So Leviticus 19 verse 11. Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbour. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbour's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbour frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. The second reading is Psalm 133. Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing even life forevermore. The New Testament reading, but not the gospel, is Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The Gospel reading from Matthew, chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. Matthew 7, verse 7. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Amen.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Since late December, we've been moving through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we're closing in on the end. And today we're looking at one of the most famous sections of all, Ask, Seek, Knock, and The Golden Rule. Uh, The connection between the material that we're looking at today and the text that comes immediately before it, which we, we actually looked at two weeks ago on the dangers of judgmentalism, the connection is uh, not obvious. Uh, two weeks ago, we, we looked at that section and, and saw that uh, even though um, churches, it is assumed, Christian communities, we, we saw uh, Christians, we are supposed to be uh, um, a um, judging community, a correctional facility, yet and nevertheless, we were to uh, be very careful and wise with respect to the dangers of judgmentalism. Well, the connection between that material and the material we're looking at today is not obvious. And in fact, it is a little bit difficult to know precisely what Jesus is talking about. Um, as we've seen in recent weeks, Jesus is teaching his disciples using methods that we are, by and large, not familiar with. He is using the techniques of Hebrew wisdom literature, speaking in Proverbs. Asking rhetorical questions. And even in our text today, speaking poetry. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, The door will be opened. Well, this is a proverb, and it's beautifully and artfully put, and it's something that is undoubtedly true. But it also is something that has a time and a place and something that must, with wisdom, be judiciously applied as a proverb, Jesus' words are poetry as well. The basic structure of Hebrew poetry is to say your message two or three different ways in parallel. Jesus' proverb is a short poem, two complementary messages about asking and receiving. Each message is said in three different ways. In order to unpack the proverb, in order to understand what it means and how we might apply it, Jesus asks two rhetorical questions. Each question assumes and prompts the answer, of course not. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give good gifts to those who ask him. Uh, One common way of understanding Jesus' words is that he's teaching on prayer, encouraging prayer, encouraging persistent, believing prayer. Jesus here offers us the greatest of encouragements to be a people of prayer. We will be heard, we will be answered, we will be welcomed in with our requests And yet, of course, surely these words cannot be understood as some kind of absolute unconditional promise. If they were taken in that way, then God would become some kind of cosmic vending machine obliged to send exactly whatever was ordered. And the implications of that would be appalling. We'd all be too afraid to ask apart from anything else. But we understand from the type of language being used, expressing things in Proverbs and speaking poetically that Jesus is offering us great encouragement to pray with sincerity and believing our loving, open-handed Father. He loves us and he knows us and he knows what we need. These things are generally true but it's not to be taken as some kind of binding legal contract. It is natural to read these verses as being about prayer because almost exactly the same words actually occur in Luke chapter 13 verses 9 to, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 11 verses 9 to 13. And in that context, Jesus is very definitely and very obviously teaching on prayer, teaching his disciples to be bold and persistent in prayer. Another reason why it is natural to read this as being about prayer is the phrase, good gifts to those who ask him. The good things are not specified, but rather we can trust God to give us what is good and right when we come to him as his children, when we come to him through Jesus Christ, his son. So that's one way of reading this proverb, that it's all about prayer. Another way of reading these verses is that this is about kingdom entrance. This is about entering the kingdom of heaven. This is about seeking first the kingdom of God and Christ's righteousness. And the message then of the proverb would become something along the lines of, it is easy to become a Christian because God welcomes all it is easy also to attain the character transformation described in and needed within the Sermon on the Mount because God gives us graciously, quickly, the power to overcome sin, the ability to love what he loves and to hate what he hates, to to find that love for others that we find ourselves so destitute of because he gives the Holy Spirit. To all who ask. So a second way of understanding this proverb is that it's all about coming in to the kingdom of heaven, and this is also a natural reading of the text. Um, the verbs in uh, verse 7 are all present imperatives something that you don't necessarily need to remember Uh, but the point of that is that grammatically the most accurate way of translating these verbs into English would be to say this is about beginning something, you're commanded to begin and not stop or to do it repeatedly or to do it customarily in other words keep asking and don't stop asking start seeking and don't Stop seeking, don't give up, knock, and don't quit knocking. That, that's, that's the force of these verbs in, in Greek. And why why does this, uh, does this read naturally about kingdom entrance? Is because the kingdom of heaven is about radical inclusivity. This is good news for everyone, not just for some. This is good news for Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. And this reading of Jesus' words is also a natural reading of the text. And again, that phrase, good gifts, in the second half of verse 11, translates a phrase that is literally, good things. And that's an inherently ambiguous phrase. It's not specified for us in context what the good things are. But in the rest of Matthew's gospel, good things generally means good spiritual things godly character, good works, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The meaning of the proverb then becomes for us, just as a human father knows how to give good material and physical gifts to his children, so too how much more our heavenly father can be trusted to give good spiritual gifts to his children, the disciple's Christ, And this reading also sits really well in context because we'll notice as we continue to the end of the sermon that Jesus from now on talks more and more about entering through the narrow gate, something that would require knocking in the ancient world. You knocked at the gate, not at the door. He talks about watching out for false prophets. And he talks about the real possibility of kingdom exclusion on the day of Christ's return. So that second understanding of the proverb, that this is about kingdom entrance, it fits really well in context. So then, Jesus is inviting sinners to come to him and to follow him and to be absolutely sure of his father's welcome. It's an exhortation to kingdom entrance. And actually, that's exactly how I read this passage when I first encountered it at about the time when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I understood from the text that Jesus was assuring me, reassuring me, assuring me that I would be welcome and that I would meet God personally if I asked him to reveal himself to me, which, of course, he did. And so, actually, the text reads naturally, I think, in both ways, either as an exhortation to prayer or as an exhortation to kingdom entrance or kind of both. And it may be that there are other possible readings as well. And that's the beautiful thing about Proverbs and poetry. Is it speaks to people's hearts in subjective ways. And there's a lot of subjectivity and ambiguity in biblical interpretation, isn't there? Heaven forbid that you hear me saying that any and every interpretation of the Bible and of biblical text is acceptable. <laughs> By no means. However, it, it is also obvious at times that the Bible, in various passages and in various ways, intentionally includes ambiguity, double meanings, resonances, things that invite widely different understandings and meanings. Beautiful, wonderful, God given ambiguity. Um, ambiguity is deeply frightening, I think, to us as uh, Westerners living in the early 21st century. Actually, I can remember quite clearly the first time I was quite shocked when I first encountered true ambiguity in the biblical text. I thought, that can't be right. Um, you know, we expect everything to be plain speech and we expect meanings to be exact and precise. And this passage or that passage, we, we desire that its meaning be indisputable. And the reason for that is, and that's reasonable for us, because we live in a world governed by rules and policies and the rule of law and legal contracts, and also because English, as a language, is capable of a complexity and an exactness not found in many other languages. So so we're used to and desire and need to communicate precisely, thank you very much. But Hebrew is a poetical language often imprecise, but rich in resonances and multiple or double meanings. And the act of translation itself from Greek or from Hebrew into English, that's not an exact science. A uh, friend of mine at the moment is working in uh, Central Africa on Bible translation projects, and he recently approved a translation of this text that we're reading today. The translation that he approved is... Uh, will read uh, in the the language. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a jellyfish. And the reason for that is that uh, in that part of Africa, snakes are a delicacy. So if you translated it literally, it would be mysterious. A father might give his son a snake if he asked for a fish. Well, what counts is that we interpret responsibly that we interpret one scripture in the sensible light of others and that we interpret in community, sharing insights and, most importantly, prayerfully asking God for his help. But this is our digression. Um, uh, forgive me. My, my point here is that sometimes the Bible is truly and intentionally intentionally ambiguous as a result of the style or language of communication that's been chosen well, let's move on. Verse 12 begins with the word so, which could also be translated as therefore. Verse 12 offers us a summary statement. So, or therefore, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Um, if we understand verses Uh, 9 to 11 to be an exhortation to prayer, then this summary statement continues the theme in the Sermon of the Mount, that as sons of God, that is, as those who represent him in his likeness and image, we are to continue to imitate God. Just as our Father in heaven is lovingly open-handed and generous, we too are, as his people, as individuals and as a community, to be lovingly open-handed and generous, doing to others just as we would have them do to us. If, alternatively, we understand verses 9 and 11 to be an exhortation to kingdom entrance, then this summary statement now does a really good job of summarizing the entire sermon up to this point. It summarizes, the golden rule summarizes the entire Sermon on the Mount. And the phrase "Do to others, what you would have them do to you," it, it is widely known as the Golden Rule. Um, and it's been called that for a very long time. The tradition is that the Roman emperor Alexander Servius of the third century .AD, he had Matthew 7:12 inscribed in gold on the wall of his throne room. It's not known for certain if that's true, but there's evidence that this particular empress, uh, um, Severus, I think, something like that, was a friend to both Jews and Christians, even though he was a pagan. Anyway, it's from that tradition that the name springs. When it comes to the golden rule, many people assert that this principle is unique to Jesus. Others, they say, may have come close by way of articulating something similar, but it's always in negative terms. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. And indeed, there is a story from about um, 20 BC of a young would-be Pharisee who challenged the rabbis of his age to teach him the whole law, but to take no longer than the time he himself could stand on one leg. In other words... Teach me the entire Old Testament in about 30 seconds. Thank you very much. Uh, The the famous Rabbi uh, Hillel, knowing that his rival, Rabbi Shami, had dismissed the challenge, Rabbi uh, Hillel said, What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Unquote. And with respect to this positive way of saying it, do to others what you'd have them do to you, with all of its fearsome implications. We we can't say, therefore, for certain, no one ever said this until Jesus. We we just can't say that with certainty. Indeed, even Jesus says that he's doing little more than summarizing what's already in the Bible. Um, and he's right. For the Old Testament, teaches explicitly and emphatically love your neighbor as yourself. And that is a positive command. Do something. Well, Jesus restates that. He just articulates it in a new way, do to others as you'd have them do to you. And this, of course, this saying now includes do not repay evil for evil, but rather repay evil with good. It includes that because none of us like being treated badly, even when that's precisely what we deserve. And Jesus' command here and now includes what we might call paying it forward or random acts of kindness, us doing to others good things, whether or not it's in response to anything that's happened to us before. And we can do that because we'd like it if it happened to us. And Jesus' golden rule is universal. Family, friends, strangers, newcomers, enemies, competitors, adversaries, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. And as an ethical litmus test, the golden rule is an extremely powerful tool. What would Jesus do? What should I do? How does Jesus want me to respond in this awkward situation? Well, act and do towards others as you yourself would like to be treated. Jesus' rule is applicable in every situation of our lives, whether at home or at school or at work, whether in the family room, the boardroom or the classroom we can work out what to do by prayerfully asking ourselves, how would I like to be treated in this situation? And indeed, we can review our own behavior later by by prayerfully asking ourselves, how would I have felt if someone had treated me in that way, the way I treated that person? And I think that one practical application of this teaching, and I think this is important, and this is something that I have tried Uh, To obey for many years, never sell anything if you could simply give it away. Now, most of us cannot afford to simply give away houses or cars because we need the money from the last one in order to buy the next one. But most of us purchase new clothes, computers, shoes, handbags, watches, garden settings, etc., 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 before thinking about whether or how we're going to get rid of the old ones testifying to ourselves that we can make the new acquisition without needing money from the old. So then, in this age of eBay and Gumtree, it's important to stop and think. I know that I could sell this, but might it be more loving simply to find someone who wants it or needs it and give it to them free of charge? Would I be happy if that happened to me? lovingly open-handed. Indeed, this is just the rule we need right now for knowing what to do during the COVID-19 crisis. As Christians, we must think Christianly about our shopping, for example. There are many good reasons why we won't be stockpiling, hoarding, or panic buying, but this is one of them. Do unto others as you would have them do to you taking only what we need in order that others too may have access to what they need. That's love in progress. That's that's love in action. Well, the golden rule might sound extraordinary in its implications. It might also sound extraordinary in the light of something that Jesus said earlier, affirming that every law and lesson of the Old Testament stands Chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And there's something for us of an apparent contradiction there, isn't there? For us, in summarizing a vast collection of laws, statutes, decrees, oracles, rules, and laws, with one simple principle, it sounds like the one simple principle cancels out the written code. But that contradiction isn't real. Of course, there is no necessary contradiction between saying, on the one hand, every rule is still in place. And all the rules can be summarized in one rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. We do live in a universe where complexity and simplicity exist side by side. Yet we by and large, tend to love either one or the other. I love complexity. I'm a theologian. Without it, I'd be out of a job. Uh, Think of the rules uh, that you know are already in place in your home or in your school or in your university or workplace. Now think about those rules and think about this. If all of those rules were simply replaced with one principle do to others as you'd have them do to you, which of the standard rules would become obsolete? And I think you'll find that none of those rules would change. Indeed, the rules we have at home or elsewhere are almost always context-specific outworkings of what it means to love one another perhaps the simplicity of the sentiment expressed in chapter 7, the golden rule, perhaps that simplicity is meant as an antidote to the possible legalism that chapter 5 could mistakenly have provoked. Well, how are we to understand all this? Keeping the law of Christ in all of its detail and complexity is simple and easy if we love one another. The fact that we find it hard to keep the law of Christ in all of its detail and complexity is not because it is hard or complex, but rather because we are evil. It's simple, easy, and straightforward if we simply love one another. Churches are more than correctional facilities. They are loving, open-handed communities, just as our Father in heaven is lovingly, open-handed. To the glory of God, our Father, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen.